Hello, I'm John Cameron, and welcome to Musicology. This cult following you've got, they said that the people that follow you are fashion designers and artists and, and all of that, but it seems to be coming more public now than just the... Well, they're the public too, you know? Well, I know that, but I mean, uh, it's sort of a confined group, aren't they? Uh, well, I think it's spreading, you know, I think that uh, growth is necessary, you know, I've been working very hard mm. also to grow, and as I grow, my public is growing, and I think that's fantastic. How can a discography with a stretch of three amazing albums be so underrated, so unspoken, and so, well, it's Grace Jones, so it's usually best not to ask questions. My face just was not understood. They were like, oh, but you're so dark, but your nose is, is not flat and large, and but your lips are, are really full, and they just didn't they say, well, what are you? After a trilogy of disco albums, it was time to begin a new one, composed of new wave, R&B, reggae and funk. The songs had to match the visual crafted by Grace Jones and Jean-Paul Good, and be tailored to her own unique voice and personality. My voice was so low, when I finally did find my voice, or was allowed the freedom to find my voice, without being told, you know, well, we can't mix this on the radio because it, it, your voice is too low. After the lacking success of those first three albums, the head of Island Records, Chris Blackwell, stepped in for control. I signed her and she made three records and then I produced her the next three records that she did for us and then the first record I produced I had a picture which was on warm leatherette I had it blown up five foot by five foot and put in the studio and told the musicians this record's got to sound like that picture. Along with the poster of Grace hanging on the studio wall Blackwell and co-producer Alex Sadkin had a series of tapes containing songs that they were going to cover many of which, in their original forms, seemed to be an unlikely fit for what they were trying to achieve. Chris hired drummer Sly Dunbar and bassist Robbie Shakespeare. Sly and Robbie would go on to be regarded as one of the greatest duos in production and rhythm. They would be the ones tasked to execute the new era of Grace Jones. When he asked us to do the Grace Jones session, I'd call us up to his New York apartment and he played some Grace Jones stuff. He called a session and said, we're going to Nassau to record. So when we got to Nassau, Robbie was saying, what are we going to do? And we keep asking, nobody knew. So Chris said, we're just going to make some music. So they were thinking of, I remember when they said, ready, I remember the first tune that was recorded was a tune called Warm Literate. It's November 1979, and the Compass Point All-Stars were now assembled. Robbie, myself, Mikey Chung, Tiki Percussion, Wally Badaru from France, and Barry Reynolds from England. It's important to note that they weren't just doing covers. They were completely transforming the original versions into something more tailored, into something almost new, into something arguably better. Glass in the underpass, 
The original version of Warm Latherette by Dennis Miller is an early example of the industrial genre, with elements of new wave and synth pop. Warm Latherette. See the breaking glass in the underpass. See the breaking glass in the underpass. The instrumental is striking but repetitive. The lyrics are exceptionally well written but delivered in an emotionless manner. That's not to disregard its significance or individuality, but to further illustrate that what was going on Jones's album would not be in that vein. The song is basically a surmise of J.G. Ballard's 1973 novel Crash, in which the protagonist becomes sexually aroused by the staging and participation of car accidents. The content might seem strange, but Grace would later reflect on the track, remarking that it was easy to get into character for it. And that's how she should be thought of when singing many of her songs, a character. Well, it was slight, ruddy, and I guess I had a kind of a, 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 a you know, a visual. So I guess I kind of had a, a bit of a, oh, I don't know, a kind of a rock and roll, not rock and roll, but edgy. Warm Leatherette was possibly the best way to introduce the new Grace Jones to the world, perfectly matching her attitude and presence. Despite it not making much of an impact at the time as a single, the song is a staple in her discography. first tune that was recorded was a tune called Warm Letterette. And when I heard the playback, I said, wow, it's great. And then the second one, which I think is one of the, my favorite records, is called Private Life. Later in that same session, the All-Stars would be played another tape, with this one containing Private Life by The Pretenders, which had only just been released. Private life, drama, baby, leave me Transformation wasn't as radical as the former, maintaining its basic rhythm, but performing it drier and funkier. The original guitars were replaced from their elongated chord strums to a funky riff. These are present on what's been labelled as Long Version 2. 
which was released as part of a special edition release of the Warm Leatherette album. It could be assumed that this was an early version of the track, as those riffs would be removed on the commercial version, only making their appearance towards the end to amp up the energy. This time, Grace's vocal delivery is less melodic than the original. This spoken word style of performing songs would be revisited by Jones on almost every album she did going forward. These modifications made, Wally Badaru contributed his synth arrangements to add to the almost sinister atmosphere. One of my favourite songs that we did with Grace was called Private Life. And today it's still one of the songs when, whenever I get to see Chris Blackwell, we believe it was one of the, the best things that we did with Compass Point, All Stars. All the parts that you hear me doing, which are basically the melodies, the intro stuff. All these things were not written by Chrissy Hine. As a session player, I was not just coming with sounds, I was coming with ideas. Chrissy Hind of The Pretenders would later remark that this version of Private Life is how it was supposed to sound. Rarely does a cover get such praise from its original artist. This speaks to the mastery of the team behind it. This song, Private Life, was a turning point. All of a sudden, Sly, Robbie, Mikey, Sticky, Barry and I, we were a band together. Because all of a sudden there was something, there was something magic. There are a multitude of versions that exist for the song. As mentioned, there is the long version 2 mix, which appears to be an earlier or alternate to what was released initially. Let's pan the two side by side. The album version in the left channel and this other mix in the right. seems to be a very discreet pitched up replication of the lead vocal playing under the main that was later added in production. The single would retain its original guitar licks in the opening chorus and Grace's vocal is further accentuated by reverberation. As is synonymous with reggae music and island records, a dub version of the track would be produced, starting with the album version's beginning structure before breaking down into a showcase of its masterful musicianship.
was not cooking, it was not cooking, and there was no point trying to even go any further. Blackwell will come with a bunch of tunes to try, and they will give just a couple tries to each of them. If on the second try, if it was not cooking, forget it. And they were right. This was music. That's what music is all about. Gotta be just there. Private Life would be released as the third out of seven singles from Warm Latherette charting the highest at number 20 in the United Kingdom. It would be remixed and re-released again in 1985 to similar success. This song would be the turning point in the sessions where the band clicked together and knew they were participating in something special. The B-side of that single would be an outtake from the album, a cover of Joy Division's She's Lost Control. This was possibly the last song to be recorded during the Warm Latherette sessions, with Grace reflecting on it as cut or recorded, really just to wind up the sessions. This might have been the case initially, but listening to it, she really does lose control. She commits to the role as naturally as if she's speaking one of her four second languages. Rather than it coming from a male perspective, with Jones, it's more like a removed self-assessment, reinterpreted according to gender. Strangely enough, for a B-side, the song would have different edits. There's the 7-inch edit, but then there's three long versions, pressed on different singles all around the world. Stranger than that are the differences beyond those edits. Long version one is a different mix. As the reverberation is much drier on the drums and vocal, the bass is lower and the rhythmic synth is mixed out in some sections. Whatever the preferred mix, it wouldn't have been out of place on Warm Latherette's final configuration. When Grace Jones was asked in 1980 how she would sum up her music, she replied, good songs, interpreted well. Nothing trendy, classics, whatever that might be. And I guess with, with my voice, I can handle my voice being deeper, can handle, 
can cut through some strong music. Mm. If your voice too fine and pretty, you can't put no heavy bottom to that. Yeah. You understand? You drown it. Yeah. We drown out the voice, mm. right? The Warm Leatherette album would be issued on vinyl and cassette in May of 1980, with the final masters having been printed in March. Both formats would have different content, but the vinyl version being significantly shorter than its counterpart. Many of the songs would be edited down, usually removing the extended instrumental sections. Some editions of the cassette would have written on it. Most of these tracks are longer versions than those on the record. While the vinyl would say, due to limited space on the record, cassette available with extended versions of most tracks. The album would be well received in the United Kingdom, reaching number 45 on the charts. Perhaps not a significant success, but it was a pretty engaging chapter in the new book of Grace Jones. It was a precursor to greater things in revisionist history. Grace Jones finally had her voice. She was freshly 32. She was newly a mother. She was about to become an icon. There would be more than 13 tracks recorded in those sessions and many covers being rejected before an attempt at recording. The Rolling Stones' Brown Sugar being a notable example. But there was one original record that didn't fit the mould of the album that would define the next. Initially an instrumental recorded by the Compass Point All-Stars titled Peanut Butter, what it would become later was considered too out of place for Warm Leatherette. This track would be released in February 1981 as a B-side to a rather obscure single. Oh, well, this song is called Pull Up To The Bubble First. Original song was called Peanut Butter. So Grace changed, they changed the lyric idea for it. It was on tape for a year before it came out. What happened, it came out as an instrumental and Juno Tucker was supposed to sing the Peanut Butter song, but we left to Jamaica. So when we came back up to do the next Grace album, she was crying and said she won't back her rhythm. That was that rhythm. Wow. She needed back because she heard it playing somewhere and she said she wanted her rhythm, she wanted her rhythm. And they brought up this girl named Dana, Mano, and they curled the lyrics back around the rhythm. So. It wouldn't be long after until Grace, Dana Mayo, and Sly and Robbie reclaimed it, added lyrics, and turned it into one of the greatest club tracks of the 1980s. Instrumental would be reworked slightly, 
evening out the mix and overdubbing new bass parts with sound effects. The lyrics would be a cause for controversy, with some radio stations in the United States banning it from airplay, assuming the song's lyrics were about various forms of sex. along with Sadkin, Blackwell and Grace, returned to the studio shortly after their previous release to work on the next. This time, there would be room for more original works than featured in the last. However, cover songs would still be a key ingredient in what they were cooking. Well, I think we, we were following the path from um, Warm Leatherette album, where we were looking for material that was very unlikely for me to do. You know, something that people would say, but oh, she's doing that. It was also music that was very uh, dramatic and very, uh, very much me in my own way and um, working with this music was uh, unpredictable, which was very nice. Written by Iggy Pop and initially produced by David Bowie, what would become the album's title track, Nightclubbing, is an adapted composition of the original. In some sections, particularly in the beginning, it seems fuller. Can you hear me? But it maintains a sparse key sequence throughout, with Grace's vocal being the main showcase. Night club day. Night club day. Where what's happening? Night club day. Love 
album, he wanted a rhythmic reggae bottom, aggressive rock guitar, atmospheric keyboards in the middle, and grace on top. This track is perhaps the best representation of his vision, taking what was good on the last album and giving the new one a more distinctive sound. Remarkably, Nightclubbing wouldn't be released as a single. It would, however, become arguably the most recognised version of the song and a staple in Jones's live shows, typically opening her vast productions, inducing excitement with that pounding combination of bass and keys. the success that was impending, but it did have a reputation in the music industry, enough for there to be interest in what Grace would do next. Interest significant enough to attract the songwriting of Sting. He offered me, I think, two or three, three or four songs. Yeah, that was one of them. And uh, we really liked it. Being the physical and vocal personification of androgyny, Grace was able to convincingly perform from the perspective of either a man or a woman, an ability that would be played with throughout nightclubbing. references to a political metaphor, three-lined whip, which is essentially when a political leader tells their party to vote a certain way. Remove that line, and there really isn't any indication of a political undertone.
instrumental is unconventional, at least in the way it's mixed. During the song's verses, it's monophonic. All instruments and vocals are mixed to the center, identical in both channels. Then, as the chorus finishes, we hear everything expand out, resulting into a full, typical stereo presentation. Despite being written by another artist, Demolition Man is not a cover. It was offered directly to Chris Blackwell and Alex Sadkin for the project. Sting would later remark that he and his band The Police were dismayed by the success of the single and would release their own version just seven months later. Demolition Man was the first single released from nightclubbing. Chart records seemed to indicate that its success was minimal. The opening track and final single from Nightclubbing was Walking in the Rain. Originally recorded by Australian new wave group Flash and the Pan in 1978. Walking down the street. Kicking cans. Looking at the billboard. Also ran. Walking. Walking in the rain Sadkin and Blackwell weren't the only masterminds behind the immaculate choice of cover songs, as they would appeal to others working at Compass Point at the time. Tina Weymouth, one of the founders of Talking Heads' side project, Tom Tom Club, remembers this as her contribution. Alex Sadkin was engineering and uh, he would do things like say, Chris and Tina, do you, do you have any ideas of cover songs that Grace might do? Walking, walking in the rain. I think Grace would sound good doing that song called Walking in the Rain. You know, it's got that line. Feeling like a woman. Looking, looking like a man. And I said, oh, that's great. Sounding like a no-no. Make late when I, when I can. Whistling in the darkness. Shining in the night. Coming to conclusion. Right, right, is Weymouth's timeline in her story, it could be possible that this was also an outtake from Warm Leatherette. What stands out on the track the most are the contributions of Wally Badaroo. It's hard to describe what those synthesizers are adding exactly, because they're so essential to the feel of the song. We have 
a slide and, and Robbie just nodding at each other like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. By the time they knew, everybody had to be ready. I was just listening to what they were doing. At the same time, I was feeling with my profit price exercise, trying to, you know, fit something in, you know, and, and that was it, you know. Yeah. And if it was cooking, it was cooking. Had this been made in the climate of today's music industry, it wouldn't just be Sly and Robbie with producer credit. That may I say, yeah. I mean, just sit next to Robbie every time we recording. <laughs> but may I tell you, me pick up a bass after me, I sit next to Robbie all those years, but me not do it with, with thumb, me do it with my middle finger. Mm. <laughs> oh, so you play a bass too? Only, I, I did it a couple of times, yeah, but yeah. basically drawing from when I was sitting next to Robbie. The only number one garnered from the album, making its peak on the Belgian charts, was I've Seen That Face Before. Strange, I've seen that face before See, him hanging round my door Like a horn, stealing for the prey Like a knife, waiting for the day Written by Barry Reynolds Dennis Wilkie and Nathalie Delon to the melody of Astor Piazzolla's Libertango. The lyrics use the dark, creeping tone of the music to further emphasize the stalker narrative. would there be an extended mix of the album version, but also one with re-recorded spoken passages in Portuguese. Comparing them side by side, the mix is pretty much the same, except during those spoken sections, the re-recorded version is missing some percussion parts and extra accordion. The fact that this was the only single to attain significant chart success at the time is remarkable looking back. Nightclubbing was a success, and pretty well in Australia and the United States. It would take out the number one spot in New Music Express's Albums of the Year list in 1981 and have its place in a plethora of other publications. Today, it's regarded as an essential album of the 80s. Throughout 1981 and 1982, Grace Jones would perform her one-man show throughout the world, further capitalising on the success of nightclubbing. Cosmetic, 
1982, concert footage would be turned into a short film, although heavily altered by husband and artistic partner Jean-Paul Good. Tacked onto the end of the main feature was the music video for a new song, Living My Life. most memorable for a scene in which Grace puts a gun to her head and pulls the trigger, not that it's particularly graphic. The lyrics describe someone constantly persecuted for, well, living their life. dramatic instrumental emphasises the intensity of such scrutiny. The title would also be the name of the follow-up to nightclubbing, even though it didn't make the final configuration. The Living My Life album would be released on the 7th of November 1982. Its contents were the result of dedicated sessions, unlike the crossover that had occurred between Warm Leatherette and nightclubbing. The most dramatic change, however, is that it only featured one cover song. The rest were penned by the regular team. Arguably the highlight of Living My Life is the quintessential Grace Jones anthem my Jamaican, guy. Oh, my Jamaican Guy. Beginning with melodic synthesized steel drums my Jamaican guy. before pounding mechanized drums my and vocal Jamaican yelps dominate guy. the mix. As the first track on the album, it was an announcement of sorts for the more dominating reggae sound that would follow. nightclubbing sessions, keyboardist for the Wailers, Tyrone Downey, would contribute his vocals and music. Grace was charmed enough by him that she began to write this song, half in English and half in Jamaican patois. Jones's mother, Marjorie, would contribute uncredited backing vocals. Uncredited because her name appearing on her daughter's album would supposedly have upset the church elders in her town. Well, I tell you, I should have called the album My Jamaican Guy. I believe that was kind of a mistake at the time. Because what we ended up calling the album that My Jamaican Guy was on, and then there was Frankie Crocker. You remember Frankie Crocker? He was a very good friend of mine, like a brother, you know. And, you know, he said to me, you should call the album My Jamaican Guy. Because I used to carry my little singles to him, you know. And I say, Frankie, Frankie, listen to this, you know, because we were very close. And he loved My Jamaican Guy. 
and I don't know why I, I should have listened to him, but then my my voice at that time with the big corporation didn't carry much weight. The Living My Life singles would combine the best of both worlds from the previous two albums, including both extended and dub mixes. My Jamaican Guy would feature both in a variety of edits. chart in the United Kingdom and New Zealand. Despite its lacking success, comparative to the previous two albums, Living My Life is a brilliantly crafted collection of songs. While it didn't contain as many covers, the quality and collective efforts are all still there. Living My Life brings to close a perfect trilogy. focus of Island Records shifted, so too did Grace and the Compass Point All-Stars. On July 25, 1987, Alex Sadkin, who along with Blackwell produced this incredible run of albums, was involved in a motorbike accident. He passed away at the age of 38. She had made several disco albums before I worked with her. She was signed to Island Records at the time I was sort of an in-house producer for Island. And the whole concept of putting her with Sly and Robbie, and, you know, Jamaican rhythm section and the keyboard player from, from M, the guy who played, uh, actually wrote, I think, a lot of the parts for that tune, pop music. He was the keyboard player. The guitar player was from uh, Marianne Faithful's band and wrote, I think he wrote, or co-wrote Broken English with Marianne Faithful. Chris Blackwell put the band together. It was his, his idea. A couple of years later, during some sessions for an unreleased album, Barry Reynolds, the only musician from Compass Point that Grace would continue to work with, penned a track in Sadkin's memory. In 2007, Grace was in the midst of recording her comeback album. The tribute would be one of the tracks included and sparked a reunion of the Compass Point All-Stars after 25 years. Well, well, well describes a character reflecting on memories, getting his thoughts together until eventually deciding that a return to home might assist in trying to make sense of life, wherever that home might be. very personal to Grace, Barry and the All-Stars. The song is reminiscent of the magic they created in the 80s, and despite being recorded decades later, it wouldn't have been out of place anywhere in the Compass Point trilogy, a further testament to the timeless music they created together. Getting high. 
an icon, an artist's artist, and one of the greatest performers of our time. While she would continue to create more excellent music, none would be as highly regarded as warm leatherette, nightclubbing, and living my life. That's a stretch of albums that only the best artists can achieve. Thank you for listening to John Cameron's Musicology. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider rating and reviewing on iTunes or sharing on social media.